Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Simply Bitcoin IRL. Today, we have a very special guest, returning guest. We have Matt Hill, CEO and founder of Start9. Uh, they make incredible Bitcoin nodes, servers, uh, really big fan uh, since first time I brought uh, Matt on the show. Talk about sovereign computing uh, and just blew my mind every single episode. So really enjoy bringing Matt on the show to talk about all that, the future of computing, the, the way that I see it. Anyways, before we jump into it, I want to give a shout out to the Bitcoin company that makes the show possible, Swan Bitcoin best place to build your Bitcoin stack. It's being built by Bitcoiners. It's for Bitcoiners. Check out Swan Bitcoin today if you haven't already done so. All right, no more delay. I want to bring up uh, our guest. Hey, Matt, how you doing? What's up, Nico? Doing good, man. Thanks happy, for having me. Happy to have you back on the show. Uh, it's been a while and I've heard from the grapevines and rip off the Band-Aid and just jump straight into it. Uh, I heard you guys are getting into AI. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, but not in the way that a lot of people like to say right now, AI is like the new blockchain, you know, it's the new, uh, the new cloud, the new, the new hype in the VC and, you know, investing world. Um, we're getting into AI strictly as a necessity because AI is part of computers. So, um, you know, our whole idea is that humans and computers should be able to interact directly without intermediaries or custodians. Um, and the idea that humans are going to use computers without um, artificial intelligence is a ridiculous proposition at this point. So something that we have to consider, right? We have to think about how humans can interact with computers using AI um, models um, and the hardware um, that is necessary for that to happen. Um, in a way that, you know, can be done cheaply, affordably by, by any person. So it's something that we've been thinking about and we've actually launched, um, a couple of products. We launched stable diffusion, which is a image generator. And uh, we were launched free GPT, which is an AI chatbot similar to chat GPT. Um, both of these are run on your personal server and the models are hosted locally. Uh, nothing leaves the device. You can access it from anywhere in the world. Um, at your own private website, and it is a truly private um, artificial intelligence experience for both image generation and um, and chat. However, um, it's not nearly as robust and fast and powerful as something like Midjourney or ChatGPT. Obviously, those are using GPUs. Um, they're running on server clusters. They are running the latest, you know how many hundred of billion parameter models uh, they're probably running at this point. And that just can't be done on, you know, cheap consumer hardware. Um, but luckily for us, the future of AI uh, is probably um, smaller models that are more highly specialized and users um, accessing those models for specific needs, in which case it can all be done uh, locally on affordable hardware um, and so we're very excited that that is now the trend in the AI world is that it's away from the one model to rule them all that knows everything and towards, um, instead hundreds of specialized models that you spin up on demand in order to get very specific questions answered, because that can be done at the edges. Gotcha. So what is the, like for, for the layman, for someone who has no idea what sovereign computing is or what the benefits of running your own server, your own your own computer essentially rather than relying on someone else's 
what would be the benefits of using your AI, right? That you're running at home versus, uh, you know, using something like chat GBT. Sure. So there's the broad question there, which is using your own server as opposed to somebody else's. And then there's more specifically using AI on your own server as opposed to an AI on somebody else's. So I'll answer the more specific one uh, first and then extrapolate from there. So basically, you know, when you are using something like chat GPT, uh, you're entering a query and that query is being sent to a server that is owned and operated by uh, OpenAI. Uh, OpenAI now has a record of you asking this question. Um, they are using the question and the answers and your interactions to train their own models for their own proprietary purposes. Um, and lastly, what you are getting in response is a um, uh, completely black box. You don't know where that response is coming from. You don't know what degree of um, you know uh, bias or censorship is being applied. Um, so a open AI as a company uh, could basically just lie to you and you would think that you're talking to this brilliant AI when in fact you're just getting a censored response from uh, OpenAI, the company. So if you want to interact with AI um, honestly and with integrity, you need to um, run your own instance of the model and that way you know it's not being tampered with. Um, so that is, that is the main reason why you'd wanna use your own AI uh, is not only because it's private, and because you may want to ask this thing questions that you're not comfortable, uh, OpenAI, the company, knowing. Um, and two, you want to make sure that the answers that you're getting um, are genuine insofar as they you know, can be uh, from, that, from that model. Um, extrapolating from there, why run a your own server at all? Well, you can imagine the same basic pattern for all of your computing needs, whether it's sending a message or sharing a photo uh, or storing your files or your passwords. Um, when you do this on somebody else's computer, uh, you know, one, they have complete insight into everything that you're doing. There's no privacy. Um, dragnet surveillance and specific invasion of privacy is, is pretty much commonplace at this point. Um, you can be censored. You don't know if um, what you're getting from these servers is um, tampered with. Um, and it costs money. So in many cases, you are paying uh, either with your data because they are mining it and selling it to advertisers, or you're paying with your um, money uh, on a monthly subscription basis. And then lastly, whenever you use somebody else's server, uh, whether it's for AI purposes or um, anything else, uh, those servers are often storing the data of millions of people and are therefore prime targets for attack. And it is only a matter of time before they get hacked and all the data is leaked. And then your um, private information is leaked to um, hackers, even though they weren't targeting you specifically. They were targeting the server that uh, was acting as a honeypot of data. And so you were just collateral damage in a cyber warfare that you never opted into, or you did opt into, but didn't realize you were opting into it. So running your own server eliminates all of that. Um, it's private, it's censorship resistant, it's free, and there's no counterparty risk of being hacked. Gotcha. So another uh, exciting announcement that you guys re made recently, and the community has received it extremely well, is you guys have announced that you're moving to the MIT, the open source stuff, which I think is really, really exciting. Why did you guys decide to do that? And what were you guys doing before? 
Um, so start OS is what you're referring to, which is our main product is what we make, um, has recently been switched over to the MIT license, which is the most permissive license possible. Um, in fact, it's more permissive than no license at all, because in the IP world, no license at all uh, defaults to proprietary rights of the author. So MIT is basically your way of announcing that there is no license, right? It's your way of just being like, this is in no way, shape, or form um, a property of the individual or company that produced it. Um, and so that's what we published OS as now. Um, that's what Bitcoin was published at. And in our opinion, it is really the only truly free license. Um, other licenses that are very common in the FOSS world are things like uh, AGPL. Uh, GPL licenses are free in every way, except that they require the um, consumer or the person accessing that code to likewise publish their own derivations of that code uh, in an open source manner, meaning it restricts your freedom to close source the software. And so we figured if we were going to go, you know, the FOSS route and really make this a free piece of software um, that we better not, you know, uh, cut corners or be hypocrites about it. And we may as well just set it free. So we set it completely free. StartOS no longer belongs to Start9 as a company. We are its stewards. We are its engineering team. We're going to pour our lifeblood into it. But from a proprietary sense, we have absolutely no rights to it whatsoever. Or let me stated more clearly, we have the same rights to it as anybody else in the world. Um, what we were before was an open source license with a non-commercial clause. Um, so not FOSS, FOSS standing for free and open source software. Uh, it, this was more like OS, open source software, uh, minus the free part. It was free in a lot of ways, as in you could access it, change it, fork it, download it, distribute it, use it. You could do whatever you wanted. The only thing that you weren't allowed to do with Start OS in the past was monetize it. You could not sell it as your own. You could not install it onto hardware and then sell that hardware. That right was reserved for Start 9. And so that is all we've uh, changed is that we have um, relinquished uh, our exclusive right to sell the software. Gotcha. And so, and then from a, from a company perspective, uh, like, does that worry you uh, at all that potentially you can be giving the, your code away to a potential yeah. competitor in the future? No. Um, uh, like, <laughs> could you elaborate? <laughs> what do you sure. mean? Um, so we are sure that competitors, uh, more competitors, will arise as a result of this than would otherwise have ar arisen. So for instance, we've already been contacted by multiple individuals who are like, hey, does this mean that I can install StartOS onto mini PCs in my country and sell them? And I said, absolutely, please do, right? Like we're also selling in that country. So technically this is competition for us. Um, but ultimately StartOS is not our business model. StartOS is the backbone of a new computing paradigm. There's going to be a whole bunch of business models that arise on top of StartOS. And, you know, because StartOS had to be source available, meaning 
it had to have the source code visible, even if it was on a, in a proprietary license, right? Even if it was with the non-commercial clause. If StartOS's source code was not visible, it wouldn't be safe at all. It would be extremely, like nobody would use it. You'd be stupid to use it, right? If you, if you ran a personal server with closed source software, I would consider that to be dumb. Um, and to be fair, it is like what we do with like our MacBooks, right? Like it's all closed source software. Um, but there's no, there's not a lot of ways around that right now. Yes, you can run a Linux device, but um, anyway, I, I digress. Um, because it had to be open source available, because the source code had to be visible, it was inevitable, right? It was unavoidable that we were going to face competition in the form of people who, even if they don't copy paste the code line for line, can literally just see what we did. And if they're well-resourced, right? Like if it's a well-resourced, talented team, they could write it in C++ instead of Rust. Right. And, and, and we would have no recourse. It's like our license wouldn't apply because they didn't copy paste our code. So the very fact that we were sharing the code made it practically the same as giving the code away because somebody could always reverse engineer it and, and do it anyway. So it's kind of a, an illusory protection to have a non-commercial clause um, in most cases but we didn't have it for no reason. We had the non-commercial clause there uh, for about two and a half years. And we had it there to protect against any very well-funded um, company that could basically outmarket us, right? So the only thing that we were protecting against was our own lack of brand awareness. Because nobody knew who Start9 was and knew that we made StartOS and that there was no, no brand recognition at all, during the early days, anyone would have been able to basically take that code and just be like, this is ours, and we never would have even come to the surface. Yeah. So the only reason that we had the non-commercial clause there was to stave off any opportunistic, VC-funded kind of like you know, thieves, so to speak, who just come in and like, see, oh, wow, they're really doing something good, except they're not very good at marketing. So we're going to get really good at marketing and um, drown them out with noise. We feel strong enough now as a brand um, to not be squashed out like that. Um, it would be very difficult at this point for somebody to disassociate StartOS from Start9, for somebody to claim to be the inventors of StartOS, right? And so the brand equity is really what we needed. And we finally felt like we had reached a point where we had the critical mass of support um, such that nobody would do it. Now, were they going to do that anyway? Probably not, right? It was probably an unnecessary protection. However, it didn't hurt us either, yeah. right? Having that protection was, was a free protection. Like, does a four-foot picket fence... Uh, help you against a home invader. Not really. Maybe they'll trip over it. So there's this like small, maybe added protection, but because it's totally easy to do and totally free, it, it didn't really make a difference. So gotcha. that's the long-winded explanation, but no, and, we are and, where we are now. And I'm glad that you, you clarified it. Someone in the chat actually had a pretty good question. Um, I'm going to pull it up so you can answer it. So yeah. Andrew Saman said, 
Matt, can you explain how Start OS is different from running Linux? Cool. Start OS is Linux. Um, Start OS is Start OS is Linux. Um, just like uh, Ubuntu or Fedora um, or Pop OS, those are all Linux as well. Right? Linux um, is is a kernel. It's a, it's an underlying uh, operating system, but there are many layers on top of Linux that define the ultimate operating system experience. Um, so start OS is a Linux distro, um, but it is the first and only, I believe I can make those claims, Linux distro whose um, user experience, because I'll go beyond just the UI, but the whole experience is oriented around the ability to run a server, okay? As opposed to a computer. So most Linux distros like um, Debian or Ubuntu, Fedora, they're all optimized to run your laptop or your desktop, right? They are client device operating systems. That's what the graphical interface is for. Like when you look at the graphical interface, you see a desktop because it's designed for a laptop or desktop computer. It's designed to be used by a person using a laptop. If you want your Linux distro, such as Debian, to be used for a server, you have to go beneath the graphical interface, pop the hood, open the command line, and get on the, get on the terminal, on the terminal command line. So Linux is the server operating system. It's like Linux is how people use servers, but it's not through the graphical interface. People use Linux from the command line. So what we have done, mm, what StartOS okay. is, is a Linux distro where the command line, everything that you would ordinarily do on the command line has been codified into and represented in a graphical interface. So it is the first Linux distro whose graphical interface is designed to administer a server. Um, and that is unique. Um, why nobody has done that before, we think we know why. Probably because very few people had needs to run a server. So there just wasn't a large perceived user base of like, you know, everyone just assumed that individuals can't run servers. That's just always been the assumption. And more and more, it's assumed that businesses can't run servers either. Unless you're some huge enterprise and you have two sys admins, two IT people, and two DevOps engineers on staff, it's basically assumed that you're just going to subscribe to some cloud software because running a server is too hard. Mm. So there's been this perception for a couple decades probably that running a server is beyond the skill set and needs of an average uh, person. And so what has happened is two things have changed over the last couple of decades. One is the need to run a server is rapidly rising as the world clamps down on digital infrastructure, right? As surveillance and invasion of privacy and censorship and costs and hacks all rise, the need to run a server is greater and greater. That's number one. Number two is Start OS has lowered the barrier to entry. It's made it easier and easier. So what's happening is the need to run a server is rising and the ability to run a server is getting lower. And we think we're reaching an inflection point where this may be a multi, multi-million person um, market. 
Yeah. And, you know, I love the way that you broke it down, basically making it so that the, you know, everyday person could run this. And in my particular case, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty computer savvy in the sense of like, I know how to, you know, manage my way around, but do I have the technical know-how to set up a server using Linux? Absolutely not. But I remember for a long time, I, you know, I first started with the Bitcoin node. I think I started with my node, then I migrated to Noddle. And then we were at the conference for at Bitcoin 2022 or Bitcoin 2023. And you were telling me about the, and it was the pre-sale, right? Um, yeah. And then I was like, okay, but can I run ele Electrum on it? And you're like, yeah, you can absolutely run Electrum on it. And it has an i7 and it's the fastest thing you'll ever run. And I was like, take my money, Matt. Um, and I got the special edition. I got the the Madex box and, yeah, and everything. Those are cool. And I've been running it ever since. And it's amazing. And then when I figured out how to, which is the primary use, and we just started using B uh, BTC Pay Server for Simply, and we just started kind of exploring all the other functionalities that it has. But my my main like motivation behind running it was I wanted to be able to connect to my Bitcoin wallet remotely anywhere around the world um, without having to use someone else's node. Right. I wanted to connect directly to my node. And it was with the start nine pure that I finally was able to do that. And I, and I do it through Tor. I remember I was told I was like, Nico, through Tor, it's not that fast. <laughs> that's not true like actually the start nine pure is faster in uh what, what's it called indexing i think that's the the the, yeah. the terminology for it yeah the ibd the initial block syncing yeah the initial the the the, the index then hat then running and nothing against those oh, guys for elect rs yeah yeah it, it, nothing against those guys but it's faster than using a my node to do that and the obvious reason is because of the hardware right the start nine pure that's a it's an actual computer right like you're you're running a, an actual computer with a legit cpu legit ram and i had such a good experience i even uncle jim's opti too to like you know i gave him my 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 onion address and whatever and now he's using it yeah. um but it's such a like it 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 made it easy for me to benefit from that anywhere and i travel a lot anywhere around the world I can connect to my start nine node, have my stuff synced and not dox my, like not dox my address, not dox my balances, not dox my IP address. Um, and that was really, really refreshing. And, and I, and it's something that I wanted to do for years. Um, but the start nine really made it easy for me to do that. Um, so yeah, it, it kind of goes to what you were saying about making it easy for the layman. So other than the fanatical Bitcoiners that are <laughs> worried about not doxing their Bitcoin addresses, who do you see is the next potential customer for start nine? Cause I, I'm sure that you guys are, you're, you're, you're the way that you're looking at it is beyond just Bitcoiners. I think Bitcoiners open the door for sure, mm -hmm. but who is your next enthusiast uh, enthusiast that you guys are thinking that could become potential customers? Well, let me, let me, rewind a couple of years real quick, just to explain kind of our progression through different markets and demographics. Um, so when we set out to build start OS, which again is not a 
Bitcoin product, right? It's it's a Linux distribution operating system that just makes self-hosting easier than any other Linux distro. That's what we do here. At the time, though, we were all Bitcoiners. <laughs> so the main thing that we wanted to self-host was our own Bitcoin node and Lightning node. Um, and you had just talked a lot about Bitcoin. But to be honest, running a Lightning node is even more important than running a Bitcoin node, right? Like running a Bitcoin node... Um, is, is really nice for availability. If you like want to perform a transaction and you're remote and you want to verify the, the inbound funds, but you know, no, not many block explorers are faking transactions and you can always run a Bitcoin node on a device that's not on 24 seven and just sync it up every once in a while, whenever you need to use it, there's like, it's good to run a Bitcoin node. We promote it. I run one, you should run one, but there's not like some critical security or, or um, you know, loss of funds risk if, if you're not running a Bitcoin node because your keys are just cold. They're just offline. And the worst case scenario is that you're temporarily having to use somebody else's node to verify a transaction. That's like the worst case scenario. Um, so if everyone did that, then the worst case scenario would be that the network is not enforcing consensus rules in a way that where everyone has a vote. But but running a lightning node is actually like really, really important. Um, there's been some things in recent history that have made people think that running a lightning node is not as important. So, um, you know, LSP integrated wallets like Phoenix uh, and Zeus. And Zeus is different because Zeus has optionality to like connect to your own node. So Zeus is like the, the everything wallet and it's our favorite of all the lightning wallets. But there's this trend in like Breeze and Zeus and Phoenix to be like, oh, no, 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 you don't have to run a node. You know, your phone runs a light node and the light node connects to our node. And then our node opens a channel with your light node just in time. And in case you need to receive funds when you're not online, the funds will actually be held by our node until you do come online. And it's like, oh boy, like all of a sudden we are rapidly in the lightning world introducing intermediaries, right? Not custodians, they're not storing the money, but they are your access points. And not in the same way that a Bitcoin node is your access point, because I can generate a transaction and broadcast it through one of any thousand nodes laying around in the world. I can just broadcast my transaction through any node and it'll get to the network. So censorship is really difficult. But with Lightning, it's not like that. These are payment channels. So when you have a Phoenix wallet and somebody sends you money and you're like, oh my God, that was magic. I didn't even need to have a node and the money just arrived and it showed up there. It's like, you're completely beholden to Phoenix at that point, right? Maybe not forever, but there is an enormous amount of trust and censorship capabilities there. And not to mention KYC, uh, even though they're not collecting information, there is some pretty very simple metadata analysis like IP tracking that can be done to just see who you are, how much money you have, and then say yes or no to your ability to send and receive it. Um, and I don't know if Bitcoiners fully realize how potentially dangerous this path that we're going down for Lightning is. We are rapidly making trade-off decisions in favor of convenience over decentralization. And um, Start9 intends to be the counterbalance to that, right? Like we want to reiterate, like 
yeah, for small amounts and depending on who you are and where you are, this might be fine for you to use something like uh, Phoenix or the Zeus LSP or something like that. But um, long-term, we really need people running lightning nodes because otherwise the network is going to be very, um, it's going to have a lot of choke points and a lot of people are going to end up on the wrong side of, of censorship there. So um, our goal is to make it as easy as possible to self-host and that includes a Bitcoin node, but it even more so includes a lightning node. You've got to run your own lightning nodes and connect to them from your client wallets on your phones and your laptops. That was a bit of a digression, but I wanted to set the stage because it says sort of why we started where we started, which is that Bitcoiners had a need to self-host more so than many demographics in this world. Um, so like, yeah, people might say, I would prefer to host my files on my own server, but I'm currently using Google Drive. But they're just talking, right? They're just saying that. Like they don't, they're not actually going to carve out time on their weekend and like de-Google their file systems. Like very few people would, maybe some hobbyists, maybe some extremists, but your average person is just not going to do that. So while we had a product for them, there wasn't the immediate fire and desire to, to take action. Whereas with Bitcoiners, we, we saw this twofold overlap in ideology. Number one is that the idea of self-hosting and taking control of your data um, is very much identical to the idea of you know, sound money and you know, digital cash um, and you know, this censorship-resistant network of, of trust. Uh, that Bitcoin is, there's this huge overlap. Uh, and so it's like, it's hard to be a self-hosted Linux distro company and not be a Bitcoiner. I believe that there are people in this world who could pull that off through a degree of cognitive dissonance, but they really go hand in hand. And so we explicitly went after Bitcoiners, right? Because one, we were and are Bitcoiners, but we also saw that as like, a these people have a need for this and they're going to get it quickly because they've already gone down a rabbit hole. They already have the, the brain uh, training and mechanism to like understand what we're doing. Because I could go and say this to a lot of people and their eyes would just cross and they'd be like, I, I don't get it. Like, I don't understand what you're saying. Uh, Self-hosting, decentralization. But these words have deep meaning to Bitcoiners. So that's where we started. That is our base. That is our consumer uh, customer base. It is our political base. It is our base of support and enthusiasm. And we will always uh, cater to our base, right? Bitcoiners are our core ethos. However, Bitcoiners aren't the whole world. We hope eventually they will be and everyone will become one. But in the absence of that happening overnight, we are trying to make efforts to reach out to everyone else, you know, like the people who are sharing photos through Dropbox and the people who are hosting their passwords on LastPass, we're just like, how do we convince these people that what they're doing is super dangerous, unsustainable, um, and that there's a better way, a cheaper, faster, um, I don't know if it's faster, but it's definitely cheaper and it's definitely safer um, and it's getting equally good. So where we're going is really trying to push um, into markets like uh, anarchists, your more hardcore libertarians, your um, home homesteaders, and like you know uh, home labbers and hobbyists, 
um, this is who we're going after. People who have a tendency to be a little bit more independent, a little bit more insulted by the thought of companies and governments all up in their business. Um, so we're really trying to go after these people, but to be honest, we haven't had a lot of success. Bitcoiners remain um, the ones who get it. Bitcoiners remain the front of the movement and the revolution, and it's just going to take a while for everyone else to catch up. I think. A hundred percent, and I, I, and that's something you know that Opti and I call it this: the concept of the of the Bitcoin echo chamber, right? And it's like, you know. How do you, how do you like, yes, the money's broken, right? Or in, in the case of start nine, like, yes, you know, people are using someone else's computer to put it simply. Um, but the, the bigger question is how do you break that echo chamber? How do you get people to care? Right. Um, and we've had this discussion in the past when you've come on, you believe it's a multi-generational thing. And I, and I've, but Opti and I really have put a tremendous amount of thought into this. And I truly believe it's about winning over the culture. Like you have to win over the culture. If the mainstream culture is not asking questions like, should I, should I be trusting someone else's computer? Should I be, you know, what is money? Like very basic questions. If that is not in the mainstream consciousness, um, it, this, this remains niche in a way. And I think that's a very heavy lift. I don't think I don't think it's something that it's unsurmountable, but it's you know, it's the challenge at hand in front of us. Now, I kind of wanted to double back to something in the beginning of the conversation that I was curious about. Right. So you open source your software. How, what's your business model as a company? How, how do you plan to how do you guys make money? Uh, it's a good question because it actually plays into the previous uh, dovetails from the previous conversation, which is about target markets. Right. So. Um, so the way we've always made money from the day we announced ourselves was the day we sold our first product, um, is that we sell hardware devices, um, that are pre-installed with start OS plug and play experiences. Um, you can download start OS from the internet, from our GitHub. You could even compile it from source if you want, and then flash it to, a mini PC, an old laptop, an old desktop. You could even run it on a VM, on a VPS. StartOS is very flexible. Um, but most people in this world, even Bitcoiners, want to plug it in. They just want to open a box and plug it in and know that it worked uh, with assurances, right? They don't want to just blindly trust everything, but they want, everyone wants convenience. We're all busy right? We're all stressed. It's a stressful time in history. And those of us who are fighting um, are busy and stressed. And so we need a degree of, of care and convenience. And so what Start9 has monetized really is convenience. We say, look, of course you can get this for free. You can do whatever you want. You don't even have to involve us. But if you do choose to involve us, um, it's not a big fee. It's not like we're gouging on prices, we're selling plug and play devices at very reasonable costs that you could get anywhere else at the same cost. Um, and then you get us as well, right? Like we're here for you. Start nine has the best support ever. I don't know of a better company at support than start nine. And I'm not just talking about in the Bitcoin space. I mean, period. We our average response time to any and all customer inquiries across all channels over the last three and a half years is under 10 minutes. 
we respond to any and all inquiries on all channels in under 10 minutes. And we solve them. We drive them to ground and we make people happy. And that's why our reputation has gotten to where it is today. We are known for this and we're proud of it and we're going to scale it. Um, and we can monetize that, right? That's how most businesses in this world prior to digital IP, prior to the whole Facebook SaaS boom bullshit, just had to earn their keep, right? They had to provide a great product and great service and charge for it. Of course, people could always you know, whittle their own tables and chairs, but they didn't. They went to a furniture store and bought one because they didn't have to do it themselves and spend all the time. They didn't have to um, you know, worry about what happens if a leg breaks. They can call in the warranty, right? We sell our devices with a warranty. That's worth something. And so we're really an old school business. We build a product, we sell it, and then we provide support for it. We're not rent seeking. We don't gouge you with subscriptions. We don't lock you in. It's just good old fashioned business. And um, we will continue to do that. And we believe that that can be a very big business, that that doesn't need to be something uh, niche. Um, so more specifically where we're going from here is that now that we have StartOS as the backbone of a new computing paradigm, forget, don't even think about it as just an OS, right? StartOS enables a new way of using computers, namely the elimination of trusted third parties from the entire computing paradigm where I can do anything. I can talk to anyone, share, share files, conduct financial transactions, anything I want, and there's no terms and conditions, there's no subscriptions, nothing is ever stored on somebody else's server, nothing is ever viewed by any person on earth. It's purely a private digital experience. That's what StartOS enables, right? It's not StartOS makes that fully, it's that StartOS was the necessary prerequisite, the necessary backbone of that kind of a computing paradigm. So what are people gonna wanna do? with this private digital existence. You know what we think the number one thing that they're going to be excited about and want to do is hook other devices up to it, right? Do you have security cameras in your home, Nico? Oh, maybe that's the wrong question. Uh, do you know people who, who have security cameras in their home, like Nest cameras and drop cams and stuff like that, right? Yeah, of course. The, yeah, the, and, the temperature thing, the... You know, the camera, yeah. the, yeah, and the, the doorbells and stuff, yeah, right? 100%. Okay. These are awesome products, okay? And these are the future of humanity, right? Everything is going to be smart. Everything should be smart, right? Like, that's a good thing. I want a connected world. It's a smarter, more convenient, connected world. It's leverage on productivity. I can do more in that world than I can do in the ancient analog world doesn't mean you have to. It just means that you can, right? It's leverage on your own productivity. However, I don't use a lot of IoT devices, right? I had an Alexa for like a month and then I put it in a box, right? Never to be seen again because there was this ominous presence about it. There's this really insidious, dark aura <laughs> around these devices. And it's no different than using software through somebody else's server. In essence, it's no different, but it feels different because it's brought into the physical world, okay? It's like out of sight is out of mind. When you text message your friends, 
or you have a video chat with your friends, you don't really feel the presence of Zoom, of Telegram. You don't actually kind of like feel like an employee is sitting between you and your friend, right? The analog that I like to bring up for this is like, let's pretend that you're sitting in your home and instead of talking to me, so like you and I are sitting in your home, we're having a beer and we're talking, but instead of talking to each other, we're passing messages to a Telegram employee who's sitting between us, like literally on the couch between us. And I say, hey, tell Nico, I said, what's up? And then he tells you, right? And then you tell him to tell me hi back. It, the absurdity of that would be immediately apparent. And not only is it absurd, it's incredibly undignified, right? It is like, I want to like punch this person in the face, like get out of my living room. I'm trying to talk to Nico. Okay. And that is what these smart devices do is it makes us realize for the first time, most people for the first time that this is how all of our computing interactions are, is that there's this device between me and the thing I'm trying to do. And this device comes at a monthly subscription. It costs me money. If I don't pay it, I suddenly can't view, I can't store video footage of my home anymore. Um, they can turn off my camera. They can watch me anytime they want. It's a fucking live video feed. And some employee at Google can just watch me in my home. Okay, it's like, it's incredibly undignified. And it's never going to happen. Like my view of this is that they're just barking up the wrong tree, that this is the largest mistake in the history of technological innovation in the last 50 years, at least, is that we had a big oopsie moment as a species over the last 20 years by migrating all of computing infrastructure to centralized cloud data farms. It is one of, in retrospect, history is going to view this as a like, Face palm, what the fuck were those ancient humans thinking when they thought that that was actually going to work? It was invasion of privacy, mass surveillance, censorship, high cost, third counterparty hacks. And on top of that, it's just completely undignified. It's embarrassing to communicate and operate like children in a room where parents have to give you permission to say and do everything that you want. It's ridiculous. And so, with that in mind, that is our essential thesis as a company, is that this is dumb, that SaaS is dumb, that third-party cloud IoT is dumb, and that there's a completely better model. And so what we are going to do is ultimately we're going to be selling devices that are not servers, right? Next year, you'll be able to buy a Start9 router. You'll be able to buy a Start9 security camera. And these devices will be yours, completely and utterly yours, you will plug them in, tap a couple of buttons, and then you'll be able to go anywhere in the world and watch live video footage of your home from your cell phone in such a way that not only can nobody see the video footage or censor it, but nobody even knows that it exists, right? We're talking about a completely private, smart uh, fleet of devices that are connected over a private anonymous network globally. And even if somebody doesn't understand how that, you know, pie is baked or why it's super important, our basic normie consumer 
hypothesis is as follows. In hand A, you can get a camera from Google that will cost you, I don't know, $100. And it'll cost you $20 or $30 a month forever. All the video footage will be stored on Google servers. They can look at your home anytime they want. They can cut you off anytime they want. Um, it's not protected by any sort of Fourth Amendment rights to illegal searches and seizures, which means any government official can walk into Google and just request access to that video footage. And if Google servers ever get hacked, that video footage is going to be all over the world. So that's option A. Option B is instead of $100 for the camera, you're going to pay more. You're going to pay maybe $300 for the camera. But it'll never cost you another cent again. It's free for life. There's no subscriptions. Uh, all the video footage is stored automatically on a server in your home that you control. You access the video footage privately from anywhere in the world without asking permission from anyone. Um, and we just think that this is a better option, especially, especially if there are financing options. Because again, the reason Amazon is able to sell Alexas for like $20 and the reason Google is able to sell Nest cameras for $50 is because they're losing money on that sale and locking you in to a, a rent-seeking subscription model. Yeah. So if you don't want that and you don't want the invasion of privacy and the censorship and all the rest that comes with it, people are going to have to get used to this idea of owning things again, right? The the Google thing is the you'll own nothing and be happy. And the, the start nine thing is, well, you'll own everything and you'll... Yeah. You I don't know what to say. You'll, I need to finish that analogy. You'll there. actually be happy. Yeah, you'll, you'll you, yeah, you'll, you'll be, you'll be free and independent. How about you'll, that? you'll actually be happy. Fuck the, happiness. You'll uh, be free and independent. Free and independent. I love that. Okay, so wow, so much to unpack there. Love the analogy, and then I think what you're referring to is IoT, right? The Internet of Things. Correct. Anything that's connectable that includes like a smartwatch, for example, as well. We, wearables right. are going to be yeah. huge, man. Can you imagine? So my dream device here, my like dream thing, and I've said this for many years, even before Start9 was an idea, is I want my body like wired up, right? Like discreetly, obviously, I don't want to be walking around with like things connected to my head because it might look odd, but like I want to know everything about myself. Like I want, I want sensors like collecting like brainwave activity and heart rate and blood sugar and, and I want all that data to then be interpreted by some super smart algorithm and AI and categorized. And I want it to look for correlations. I want to be told things that were unimaginable. Like, hey, Matt, ding, 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 correlation found. Did you know that every single time you eat a banana and miss two hours and, and get less than eight hours of sleep for three days in a row, your blood sugar rises, causing you to feel okay. a certain way. You are bearing the lead, my friend, okay? And this is what <laughs> you're bearing. This is what you're bearing. So right now, the reason that that sounds freaky to everyone yes, is because you are sending that data to someone else. Yes. But what if you don't, what if you remove that element altogether and you are the sole owner of that data, then all of a sudden, that seems... Personally, that sounds alluring to me because it's Amazing. like, oh, it's telling me my vitals. It's telling me my health. I'm the owner of that. Yeah. Let's say for whatever reason, you know, I'm paranoid and I'm on a trip and I want to look to see, oh, is someone in my living room, for example, 
right? Um, instead of, you know, asking Jeff Bezos as someone in my living room, and I'm making a joke, of course, um, you know, you'd be going through your own computer. Now, when you mentioned that, Matt, is that possible through Tor, live streaming video, or is this something that would have to be done over ClearNet? ClearNet. Okay. Yeah. It's ClearNet or alternative networking protocols, right? So mm -hmm. Tor is Tor. It's not just Tor and ClearNet. There's ways to connect computers in this world um, besides those two. And there will be a third, right? In the future with the, you know, proliferation of home servers and home, you know, routers that are specifically um, designed for it, you can in time build out grassroots mesh networks that will connect to each other over, over distance via satellites and towers and literally build um, a new internet from the ground up without the ISPs, right? The ISPs are the final gatekeepers, they're the final boss. Um, today, they control all access to the internet. And it's okay right now because we have ways of leveraging the ISPs and their infrastructure to conduct private and anonymous communications. But if you assume that the attacks will escalate, right? That this war will escalate in nature, you could imagine a future where ISPs start to get a little bit more aggressive about what kind of internet traffic they permit, what kind of home routers. You're already seeing a trend with ISPs right now where they don't require you to use their modem and router, but they almost require you to, right? Like when, when you set up a new internet connection at your home, they present their modem router tandem product as like, oh yeah, here you go, plug this in. Like it's the default, you know, like just plug this in, um, which is incredibly dangerous, right? When you are using your ISP's modem router tandem product, they literally just have access to your local area network. Like your, your entire home is exposed to them. So you really do need to use aftermarket modems. And for fiber connections, you need to use an aftermarket router. Um, and we have very strong opinions on what kind of uh, routers you should be using, especially not only for security purposes, but also for um, compatibility purposes with StartOS. StartOS is very much moving in the router direction. Um, not that StartOS will be a router operating system, but that StartOS will be aware of routers and be able to configure them and change their settings in order to um, facilitate network communications without the user having to be an advanced user, right? As we have always done, like that's our goal is to do advanced things in a non-advanced way. Um, and the router is a centerpiece of that when it comes to networking. So um, anyway, uh, I don't even know what question you asked. I don't know, man, but I'm enjoying the fuck out of this conversation. <laughs> Look, so, okay. So this is really, really exciting stuff. Uh, the way that you broke down, we talked about uh, um, IOTs. I think that's fascinating. Um, it makes them actually alluring to use, right? Because... The way that you described it, right, which is, you know, once we use Telegram, you know, you don't really think about the fact that it's not you. It's it's not really uh, me to Matt. It's right. me, Telegram server, Matt. Right. And anything that happens in between, you have to take their word for it that it's end to end encrypted. Really? Yeah. 
Um, even even if it is though, let's say it is end-to-end encrypted. Okay, like let's mm-hmm. give them all the benefits of the doubt. It's still intermediated. Yeah, the amount of metadata analysis that can be done is would shock people. Okay, like yeah. they might not be able to see the exact contents of the message, but they know who you're talking to, when you're talking to them, how often you talk. They can compose social graphs based on that information. They can see the length of the message that you sent, even if they can't see its contents. And a lot of inference can be done there, um, combined with other data collection of the phone, like uh, location data. They can detect if you know I sent a message and then I left my home and then we both went to the same place. So now that message can be inferred to be like, "Hey, meet me here." Like, there's just it's awful. Just you've got to exclude intermediaries. You have we have to eliminate third parties from the computing paradigm. That is the goal. Sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, no, no. Uh, this is this is fascinating. I'm, my mind is is uh, uh, being blown right now. Um, okay, so this world sounds very exciting. Um, it actually makes me want to have a sovereign Alexa. Are we are we gonna, are we going to call it a, a, a mat? What are we going to call it? What's going to be the the equivalent of uh, of an Alexa? He's gonna he's gonna kill me. So my partner at Start Nine, you know, uh, one of the co-founders, um, his name is Aiden, and um, that just so happens to on a on a on a walk. I went on a walk, and by the time that walk was over without any intention, I had realized that Aiden could be an acronym for <laughs> artificial intelligence for distributed electronic networks. I love and, that. Um, he hates it. He does not want it to be named Aiden, but I have the trump card at this company and we'll probably name it Aiden. Um, A-I-D-A-I-D-E-N. Uh, artificial intelligence for distributed electronic networks will Ooh. probably be the virtual assistant of the start OS. Okay, so you know how they have different language, uh, different accent models for you know mm-hmm. the AI. Mm-hmm. Um, if you need a Miami accent version, uh, <laughs> consider the name Nico. It's a great name. Okay. Yeah, I mean you should be able to rename it anything that you want, right? <laughs> like this is just the default name, and you should be able to give it any voice that you want, right? Again, with the AI voice stuff, it's crazy. Like your your AI could be Morgan Freeman if you want it to be. Oh man, that's hilarious. That's hilarious. Okay. So we are getting at the top of the hour and I do want to, uh, a- uh, get to this question by, uh, one of our viewers, Andrew Saman said, Matt, can you explain your vision for what start nine OS will look like in five years? How do you see people interfacing with their personal server across devices? I mean, we covered a lot of this, uh, mm-hmm. just now, but what is the next five years in your eyes in regards to Start9 and the sovereign computing movement in general? Okay. Yeah. So we started with the server. Okay. We started with the, the, the elephant in the room was that in order to have a sovereign computing paradigm, everyone needs to be running a server. And maybe not everyone, but at least every family, every organization, right? Like every tiny group of trusted people need to have at least one server. Ideally, every human on the planet has a server, but that'll probably never happen. There's going to be some degree of of shared um, resources and Uncle Jim models. But we started with the idea that everyone needs a server. And what was stopping everyone from running a server was that there was no operating system to administer a server. Nobody knew how to run a server. There was no way to run a server unless you had sysadmin skills and command line skills. 
So that was the first problem that we solved was, okay, we've got to get, we've got to make it possible for people to run servers. Step two is how do you access those servers, right? So you're on the other side of the world. How do you talk to your server? Well, we started with the easiest and obvious one, which was Tor. Tor is a way to communicate across any distance, privately, anonymously, and happily without having to do any sort of router configurations. Tor has NAT punching, right? NAT traversal, the ability to get through a local network firewall built in. And it has that built in because the connections are actually going out, not in, okay? So Tor has two outbound TCP connections that are rendezvousing. That's probably a little more technical than we need right now. But this idea of communicating with your server. So first we make it possible to run a server. Then we make it possible and easy to access that server from anywhere in the world. Again, we did that with Tor. In 040, which is the huge update that's coming soon, is you will be able to have very, very simple uh, VPN access from anywhere in the world. You will also be able to access your server over ClearNet. Now, this is the, the sort of home run for families and businesses in many cases because it's the exact um, experience that they cur currently have with computers. They just go to a browser and they open a domain, like their domain. It would be like chat.matthill.dev. And that would be my self-hosted chat server that my friends could join and we could have conversations. And there's no more Telegram. There's no more Signal. There's no more, you know, there's no more WhatsApp, nothing. Um, and it's just like a normal website, chat.matthill.com. And you could even get native apps for your iOS and Android device that connect to chat.matthill.com. And, and we could all have private conversations. And that's what's coming very soon. So we've largely solved the can you run a server? The answer is yes. Can you use that server effectively, seamlessly from anywhere in the world? The answer is almost. <laughs> it's pretty good right now, but it's about to get a lot better. Um, and along with that is the idea of data redundancy, right? So one of the other lacking uh, aspects of StartOS right now is that in order to make a backup of all your data, because when you self-host, it's really, really, really important to make backups, because if you don't, then your shit is just gone forever. Uh, in order to make a backup on StartOS today, you actually have to click a button. You have to go in there and you have to click backup. And because of that, people don't do it. Like as crazy as that sounds, it's just an extremely rare thing for people to back up their server because they have to log in and click a, and click a button. So also coming with 040 is the ability to do automatic backups that will happen in the background without you having to worry about it. And they'll back up to any remote location that you choose on any, and any frequency that you choose, including, and this is where it gets really interesting, is other StartOS servers. So you will be able to, in the near future, have a StartOS server in your home and a StartOS server at your friend's house. And you can put servers in a couple strategic locations mm. um, and they can actually work together to make sure that all the data is, is um, copied, backed up, and they could even step in to pick, up the, um, to pick up the slack if another server is like offline because the internet in that house went offline or something like that. The other servers could pick up the slack so that you don't experience uh, downtime. Uh, somebody in the chat right now, just because it's very relevant, is asking about RAID. So RAID is a way of, of sort of automatically um, creating redundant redundancy for data across multiple drives, but it's all on the same server. So you still have this uh, locality risk, 
of like if that house burns down, right? RAID is is designed for drive failure. So if my SSD fails, then that data is also mirrored onto this other SSD or even two or three more SSDs, but it's all still there. Um, what I'm talking about is actual encrypted backups being sent over geographic distances, um, which is different. Both are great. So you can already do um, hardware RAID on Start OS. So if you have a hardware RAID setup, you can actually make that your data drive for Start OS that's already supported. Software RAID uh, is a little bit of a different concept, and that will be supported as well probably next year. Um, so RAID is coming, but also so is uh, automatic uh, encrypted backups um, to different servers. That's badass. So you, like, just in case, you know, Opti's ex-girlfriends, uh, Christine Lagarde sends a hit team to my house to yeah. get rid of all of her and Opti's pictures. Um, <laughs> with this, you know, she's not going to be able to get rid of them. Um, so wow, this was, uh, like always, Matt, this is why I keep inviting you on the show. This absolutely blew my mind. Um, shall yeah. we go through and use the last couple of minutes to talk about, uh, the three products that you guys offer, uh, which is the server light, the server one, and the one that I personally use, uh, and I highly recommend the server peer. Yeah. So, um, there's there's some very very new things uh, on, on that front that I'll share right now and make an announcement on your show. Why not? Um, so we are going to be dropping the server light as a as a product. Uh, the server light is the Raspberry Pi. The Raspberry Pi is just gradually being obsoleted. At this point, it's being rapidly obsoleted. Yes, you can still use a Raspberry Pi for um, certain things like file storage or messaging, but we highly, highly recommend against it for anything Bitcoin related at this point. It just cannot keep up. Uh, you're going to have a bad time. And because, you know, uh, people want to use it for Bitcoin, it's like they're trying, even though we're saying not to, they're still buying it and trying. And so we're like, all right, we're just going to stop selling it because people are getting themselves in trouble. And then they're getting angry at us being like, why doesn't this work for Bitcoin? We're like, well, we told you it wouldn't work for Bitcoin, but you bought it anyway, thinking it would. You didn't read the description. So we're just going to stop selling it. So we're done with the light. Um, we will liquidate our, our Raspberry Pis on Amazon or e eBay or whatever. So we're, we're done. We're not going to sell any more of those. Uh, probably starting immediately, maybe tonight or tomorrow. Um, secondly, the, the one is our sort of like mid-tier device, perfectly adequate for any individual or small family. It's going to run Bitcoin. It's going to run lightning. It's got one, two or four terabytes of storage, 16 gigs of Ram. It's a perfectly fine computer, uh, solid device for a lot of people. The pure is what you mentioned earlier, which is our top end device, um, has a, uh, very strong CPU. It's not as strong as it was two years ago when we first spec'd the device out. There's chips are you know changing constantly and advancing constantly, but it's got a pretty good CPU. It's got 32 gigs of RAM, which is uh, pretty good. Um, it's you know AI stuff is going to need even more at some point, but uh, for Bitcoin and Lightning, 32 gigs of RAM is just going to crush for you. Uh, I think current sync times are anywhere like 16 hours to sync the full archival node from Genesis, which is pretty badass on a peer. Um, and the biggest selling point of the peer is that it has an open firmware stack. Uh, and this is super rare and very difficult to achieve. The server peer runs core boot, 
which means that um, all proprietary firmware, closed source firmware has been removed from the device and that the hardware on the device is capable of running open source firmware um, that has been vetted by communities and is open and therefore provably safe. Um, and then secondly, in the pure Intel's management engine, which is Intel's like known backdoor into their chips, uh, is disabled in firmware. So um, there is at least no known uh, backdoor in the server pure, whereas pretty much every other computer on the planet, including our server one, has a known backdoor in it. <laughs> um, it doesn't mean that that backdoor is being used to spy on you all the time. It just means that like, we don't know what's going on under there. There's closed source code that could be doing all sorts of shit that we don't like. So the server pure is not only big and powerful, it's also very, very safe uh, for privacy and security, which is what a lot of our customers care about. Last thing I'll say is we're about to launch a new product line to replace the light. We're very excited about this. We have cut deals with local e-recycler companies, okay? Companies that take electronic scrap in. And a lot of the times these companies get called into like a bank and the bank is like, all right, we're upgrading all of our servers. And they do this like every two years, right? And they're like, we're upgrading all of our servers and we don't care about the old ones because we throw money away like crazy and we don't give a shit. So they just hand it to a recycler. And then these recyclers are like, well, okay, well, what do we do with these? Sometimes they take them apart and they take the chips out and they do whatever. Well, we've got some deals with them where we're like, if you come across a, across a batch of servers that have basically been given to you, you tell us, we'll buy them from you at a very cheap price and then pass that price and savings along to our own customers. So these are not new devices. They are repurposed, reused uh, devices. Um, so we're probably going to call it the server restart um, or something like that, uh, and sell those. And they're going to be extremely affordable, like cheaper than significantly cheaper than the one, but probably more powerful than the one. The trade-off is that they are used, but we were, we're going to run a, you know, a battery of tests against them to make sure that they're working and we'll warranty them just like we do everything else, but it's a used device. Um, but you get a ton of power for a very cheap ticket. That's awesome. That's very, very cool. Matt, can I tell them about the deal? Yeah, please. Okay, guys, there's a deal on yeah. the uh, on the server pure. It went just from the pure. Yeah. just the pure. Uh, it went from fourteen twenty nine, and now it's down to twelve seventy nine. And now through Thanksgiving, you could use promo code simply Bitcoin Plus, and it'll give you an additional eighteen percent off. And now that puts the server pure at $1,049. I highly, highly recommend it. Um, it is, uh, I've been using it. I mean, Matt sold me at the conference floor, Bitcoin 2022. And I was like the, the meme, uh, the Futurama meme out, or was it a uh, South Park? I was like, just take my money. Um, and I put a down payment on it and, uh, I haven't looked back. I've had a great, great experience using it. That's what I personally would recommend. Matt, well, we, we appreciate you, Nico. Um, always a pleasure uh having you on the show i literally have a box of start nine shirts at my house um i think from the thank god for bitcoin conference yep uh maybe with your permission maybe we start sending those out to I, some i got a bunch back there oh there we go i think i have more than you 
<laughs> it's, it's a very big box. How did you manage that? <laughs> uh, it, it was just left there. It was just left there. And they're like, Nico, do you, you like, you know, Matt, do, why don't you take it? And I'm like, okay, yeah. I'll take it. And it's just been sitting in the corner. Give of... them out, man. Do giveaways. Okay. Okay. Whatever so we're going to, we're going to be doing some start nine giveaway with, with Matt's permission, Matt, always an honor. And I'll, you always blow my mind when you come on the show. Opti's been losing his mind as well in the chat. <laughs> <laughs> opti cyborg i think i i read there oh man sovereign cyborg opti all right it's different um, it's coming it's coming anyways what Matt, we're doing thank you so much for joining us i really really appreciate it see ya all right guys uh, i'm gonna wrap up the show tune in tomorrow 12 15 p.m eastern standard time for another episode of simply bitcoin live i'm gonna be traveling to los angeles so opti is gonna be holding it down until then i'll see you later guys